who were slash are the Samaritans? Could some of them be the self-proclaimed quote-unquote sons of Zadok in the Dead Sea Scrolls, whose writings the so-called Zadokite calendar came from? In this message, we will introduce to you the Samaritans and show you from both scripture as well as the writings of Josephus as a second witness and scholarly writings with regard to the Dead Sea Scrolls as a third witness that these sons of Zadok may well be an offshoot of the Samaritan apostate Zadok priesthood and where this Zadok priestly split took place and why. First, who are the Samaritans? They are spoken of six times in the New Testament, but the Old Testament only points to this group by name one time. H-8118 in the Strong's Samaritan means inhabitants of Samaria and appears only one time, and that is in 2 Kings 17.29, which I'm going to read starting in verse 19. And this passage is regarding the conquering and exile of the northern kingdom of Israel by Assyria. Starting in verse 19, Also, Judah did not keep the commandments of Yahweh their Elohim, but walked in the statutes of Israel which they made. And Yahweh rejected all the descendants of Israel, afflicted them, and delivered them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them from his sight. For he tore Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel from following Yahweh and made them commit a great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until Yahweh removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria, as it is this day. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuthah, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharavim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possessions of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear Yahweh. Therefore Yahweh sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the Elohim of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and indeed they are killing them, because they do not know the rituals of the Elohim of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests of whom you brought from there, let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of the Elohim of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear Yahweh. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Sukkot Benat, the men of Kut made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nebaz and Tartak. And the Sepharavites burned their children in fire to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of the Seraphim. So they feared Yahweh, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places, 
who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They feared Yahweh, yet served their own gods, according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. To this day they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear Yahweh, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law and the commandment which Yahweh had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel." with whom Yahweh had made a covenant, and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But Yahweh, who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and outstretched arm, him you shall fear, him you shall worship, and to him you shall offer sacrifice. And the statutes, the ordinances, the law, and the commandment which he wrote to you, you shall be careful to observe forever. You shall not fear other gods, and the covenant that I have made with you you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods. But Yahweh your Elohim you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of all of your enemies. However, they did not obey, but they followed their former rituals. So these nations feared Yahweh, yet served their carved images." Also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. So as we can see, according to 2 Kings chapter 17, Israelites were deported from the northern kingdom of Israel, and foreigners with foreign gods were brought in, who were then attacked by wild animals and believed it was because they were not serving the God of the land. The king of Assyria sent a priest from Israel back into the land to teach these foreigners how to worship Yahweh, which they did right along with all of their other gods. They mixed and mingled and sacrificed on the high places in the northern kingdom that were set up by Jeroboam. They did the same things that the Israelites were cast out for doing, worshiping on high places outside of Jerusalem and mixing in the worship of foreign gods and idols along with the worship of Yahweh. Though the name Samaritans is not used in Ezra chapter 4, it is evident that the group that troubled Israel and put a stop to the rebuilding of the temple when Ezra did not allow them to help rebuild the temple were the Samaritans. Ezra chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto Yahweh Elohim of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your Elohim as you do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Ereshaddon, king of Assyria, which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, Ye have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our Elohim, but we ourselves together will build unto Yahweh Elohim of Israel, as King Cyrus the king of Persia has commanded us. You can read the rest of Ezra chapter 4 for yourselves, but in a nutshell, once they were excluded from helping to rebuild the temple, this group wrote letters to the king accusing Jerusalem of rebuilding the temple to be rebellious against him. He listened and put a stop to the rebuilding of the temple for a time. In this passage, this group is called adversaries to Judah, inhabitants of the land, and they themselves claim to have continuously sacrificed to the Elohim of the Jews since the time the king of Assyria exiled the northern tribes. These would be the Samaritans that we just read about in 2 Kings chapter 17. Now let's see what the New Testament has to say about the Samaritans, and it's not all bad. However, Yeshua did tell them they know not what or who they worship. First, let's read about the Samaritan woman. John chapter 4 verses 5 through 25. 
So he, Yeshua, came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Yeshua, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Yeshua said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Here's the animosity we saw in the previous passages. Verse 10. Yeshua answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of Elohim and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? We know this part of the story. Yeshua offers her living water and tells her all about herself and her husband's. Then continuing in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you, Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Yeshua said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. We will see that the mountain she is talking about where the Samaritans worshipped is Mount Gerizim. Yeshua plainly told this Samaritan woman that the Samaritans worshipped what they did not know, but that the Jews of Jerusalem, of which Yeshua was descended, know what they worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Not the Samaritans, as we will see, also had apostate priests from the line of Zadok, who sacrificed in the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. Here Yeshua confirms that the northern kingdom, and specifically the Samaritans, were in error in their worship of Yahweh, and instead pointed to the Jews, or southern kingdom, as the progenitors of salvation, i.e. keepers of the word and true worship. Salvation is of the Jews. Yeshua is salvation and came from Judah. He kept the feasts where and when the Jews of Jerusalem kept them. Not everything was bad with regard to the Samaritans, however. Of course, we have the passage in Luke 10, 30-37 about the good Samaritan who stopped to help the battered Jew and paid for his medical expenses and time of convalescence with his own money when this injured man's fellow Jews would not stop to help him at all. Yeshua praised this Samaritan as the true neighbor who showed love even to his enemy. The Samaritans were praised by Yeshua and held up as an example of how to love your neighbor, even though he also pointed out that they were lacking in authority and knowledge with regard to their worship. Luke chapter seventeen sixteen also tells us of ten lepers that were cleansed by Yeshua and the only one of the ten who turned back to give thanks and glorify Elohim as soon as he realized he was healed was a Samaritan. Luke 17, 17 through 19 says, So Yeshua answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to Elohim except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. So he called this Samaritan who turned back to give glory to Yahweh a foreigner. 
There are additional New Testament passages in which Yeshua lumps the Samaritans in with strangers and of the nations. Originally, the disciples were told not to go to the Samaritans prior to his resurrection, but then after his ascension, he did direct them to go to the Samaritans and all the nations. So while it is clear that Yeshua considered the Samaritans as strangers and of the nations, he also praised them as being more righteous in the weighty matters than the Jews were. They were praised as being grateful, kind, and loving, yet they still had the problem of not knowing the Elohim that they worshipped, not understanding who the one true God really was, or that he required that no other gods be worshipped at all except him in the way in which he instructed. He clearly loved them and knew they would be receptive to his message, though, as with every sect of Judaism, as well as with all of the Gentile nations, there were many who also rejected Yeshua as Messiah. There is still a sect of Samaritan Jews in the land of Israel today, and what they believe to this day is a picture of what they've believed historically in and even before Yeshua's time. WorldHistoryEncyclopedia.org says this of the Samaritans. The Samaritans are a religious sect of ethnic Jews living near Mount Gerizim, Nablus, Hebron, and the West Bank in Israel. This community differs from the mainstream Judaism by claiming that followers only accept the five books of Moses, the Torah, and not the books of the prophets or later texts. Referring to themselves as keepers or guardians of the Torah, their rituals and practices are claimed to be the most ancient and valid of Jewish tradition. Samaritans believe that Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem, is the sanctuary that God ordained from the beginning. They claim that the Torah was given to Moses by the God of Israel. Later rabbinical texts are rejected. The Samaritan Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, is the foundational sacred text supplemented by historical chronicles. They believe that at the end of days, the dead will be resurrected by the Tahab, either a restorer or a prophet like Moses. In relation to Passover, they have their own Haggadah, the text for the Seder ritual. Samaritans also retain a high priesthood and priests who are considered the true interpreters of the law. Interestingly, there is something called the Damascus Scroll among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and this history of the Samaritans also points to a Samaritan population found in Damascus. Under later history, this website says, According to Samaritan sources, the Samaritans suffered persecution under the Christian Byzantine emperors for refusing to convert. After the Muslim conquests of the region, the Samaritans were granted the status of people of the book. However, under the later period of the Abbasid Caliphate and under the rule of the Ottoman Empire in the 17th century, the Samaritan population in Damascus was slaughtered. This provided the impetus for many Samaritans of the diaspora to move back to the Nablus region, which remains their center. Now, for a little more historical context and details regarding the Samaritans, Josephus had this to say in Antiquities of the Jews, Book 9, Chapter 14, Verse 3, which says, But now the Cuthians, who removed into Samaria, for that is the name they have been called by to this time, because they were brought out of the country called Kuta, which is a country of Persia, and there is a river of the same name in it, each of them, according to their nations, which were in number five, brought their own gods into Samaria, and by worshiping them, as was the custom of their own countries, they provoked Almighty God to be angry and displeased at them. 
for a plague seized upon them by which they were destroyed, and when they found no cure for their miseries, they learned by the oracle that they ought to worship Almighty God as the method for their deliverance. So they sent ambassadors to the king of Assyria and desired him to send them some of those priests of the Israelites whom he had taken captive. And when he thereupon sent them, and the people were by them taught the laws and the holy worship of Elohim, they worshipped him in a respectful manner, and the plague ceased immediately. And indeed, they continue to make use of the very same customs to this very time, and are called in the Hebrew tongue, Kutlans, but in the Greek tongue, Samaritans, and when they see the Jews in prosperity, they pretend that they are changed, and allied to them, and call them kinsmen, as though they were derived from Joseph, and had by that means an original alliance with them. But when they see them falling into a low condition, they say they are no way related to them, and that the Jews have no right to expect any kindness or marks of kindred from them, but they declare that they are sojourners that come from other countries. But of these we shall have a more seasonable opportunity to discourse hereafter. So here we see in Josephus' description of the Samaritans the same description that we read earlier in Scripture. They were a people moved into the land who learned the customs of worship of Yahweh, but mixed the worship of Yahweh with the worship of their historic gods from where they came. Now for the fun part, with all of that biblical and historic background information regarding the Samaritans in mind, we will explore the fact that the Samaritans did have a genealogical claim to the high priesthood of the Zadok line through Manasseh, the brother of the high priest in Jerusalem named Jadua, as they were both sons of Jonathan, the high priest from the line of Zadok, through Joshua, high priest, at the return from Babylon and the rebuilding of the second temple with Zerubbabel and Ezra. Manasseh, however, married the daughter of Sanballat, a Samaritan. Sanballat then made him high priest in Samaria for his temple on Mount Gerizim. This is where the priestly line of Zadok split. So the priestly line of the Samaritans could certainly claim to be, quote unquote, sons of Zadok. We are going to start this journey through biblical history by first following the lineage of the priestly line of Zadok from the time of Solomon through to the brothers Jadua and Manasseh, sons of Jonathan the high priest. 1 Chronicles 6, verses 4 through 15. Eleazar begat Phinehas, Phinehas begat Abishu, and Abishu begat Buki, and Buki begat Uzi, and Uzi begat Zeraiah, and Zeraiah begat Mariothot, and Mariot begat Amariah, and Amariah begat Ahitub, and Ahitub begat Zadok, and Zadok begat Ahimaz, and Ahimaz begat Azariah, and Azariah begat Johanan, and Johanan begat Azariah. He it is that executed the priest's office in the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem. And Azariah begat Amariah, and Amariah begat Ahitub, and Ahitub begat Zadok, and Zadok begat Shalom, and Shalom begat Hilkiah, and Hilkiah begat Azariah, and Azariah begat Sarariah, and Sarariah begat Jehozadak, and Jehozadak went into captivity, when Yahweh carried away Judah and Jerusalem by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So here in First Chronicles chapter 6, we see the lineage of the high priest from Pinhas or Phineas, through Zadok, 
all the way to the last high priest at the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who was carried away to Babylon, and his name was Jehozadak. Then we see in Ezra chapter 3 that the son of Jehozadak, which is also pronounced Josadak in Ezra and Haggai, who returned as high priest after the Babylonian captivity was Joshua. Ezra 3, 1 and 2 say, And when the seventh month was come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Joshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of Elohim in Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of Elohim. Then Haggai chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 is a second witness that Joshua high priest after the captivity was the son of the last Zadok high priest Josadak that went into Babylonian captivity. Haggai chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 say, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of Yahweh by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Josedek the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh Yahweh of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that Yahweh's house should be built. Now we will look at the lineage of Jehozadak, which is also pronounced Josedek in Josephus' Antiquities of the Jews, Book 10, Chapter 8, Verse 6, where some of the names are also a bit different, but the lineage from Zadok is basically the same, so that we know Jehozadak slash Josedek descended from the Zadok line of high priests in Scripture and is one in the same as Josedek, high priest of Josephus, the same high priest that went into captivity, whose subsequent high priest son after the captivity was Joshua. Antiquities of the Jews, Book 10, Chapter 8, Verse 6. And now because we have enumerated the succession of the kings and who they were and how they reigned, I think it necessary to set down the names of the high priests and who they were that succeeded one another in the high priesthood under the kings. The first high priest then at the temple which Solomon built was Zadok. After him, his son Achimus received the dignity. After Achimus was Azarias, his son was Joram, and Joram's son was Issus. After him was Axaramus, his son was Phidens, and Phidias' son was Sudius, and Sudius's son was Julius, and Julius's son was Jotham, and Jotham's son was Urias, and Urias' son was Nerias, and Nerias' son was Odius, and his son was Salamus, and Salamus' son was Elsius, and his son was Azarias, and his son was Sarias, and his son was Josedek, who was carried captive to Babylon. All these received the high priesthood by succession, the sons from their father. And please forgive my mispronunciations of these names. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing them correctly, but I'm doing the best that I can. So we see that Joshua, the high priest, during Ezra's return with Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple, was the son of Josedek, i.e. also pronounced Jehozadak, the high priest from the priestly line of Zadok, who went into captivity in Babylon. Thus, the Zadok direct line of high priests continued in Jerusalem into the second temple period. Let's continue following this line to see where the Zadok high priesthood split and why. Nehemiah chapter 12 verses 10 and 11. And Joshua begat 
Joachim, and Joachim begat Eliashab, and Eliashab begat Joiada, and Joiada begat Jonathan, and Jonathan begat Jadua. Nehemiah 12 goes on to list a lot of Levites and officials in the days of these high priests. Jehoiakim, son of Joshua, high priest after the return of Babylon, son of Josedek, high priest who went into captivity in Babylon, who we saw came directly from the high priests, directly descended from Zadok, high priest in David and Solomon's time, who of course descended directly from Phinehas or Pinius, blessed high priest line. Then Nehemiah 12, verses 22 and 23, reiterate the Levites in the days of Eliashib, Yoyada, and Jonathan, and Jadua were recorded chief of the fathers, meaning they were high priests. Also the priests to the reign of Darius the Persian. The sons of Levi, the chief of the fathers, were written in the book of the Chronicles, which we read earlier, even until the days of Jonathan, the son of Eliashib. It is made clear here that Jonathan, or Johanan, was a direct high priest descendant of the high priestly line of Zadok. Then Nehemiah 12.26 concludes this section by reiterating again, These were in the days of Joachim, the son of Joshua, the son of Josedek, and in the days of Nehemiah the governor, and of Ezra the priest the scribe. Nehemiah 13 verses 28 and 29 is where we biblically see the split in the Zadok priesthood. Verses 28 and 29 of Nehemiah 13 say, And one of the sons of Yoyada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Heronite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my Elohim, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Here, high priest Jonathan was skipped, and as we will see, the two brothers being referred to here as the sons of Yoyada, son of Eliashab, are actually Yoyada's grandsons from Jonathan, Yoyada's son, who succeeded him as high priest. In Nehemiah, Jonathan is disregarded or skipped, and his sons are called the sons of his father, Yoyada. We will see why this is in Josephus' detailed account of what actually happened here to cause the split and also the evil that Jonathan, high priest, committed. Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews, Book 11, Chapter 7, Verse 1 through Book 11, Chapter 8, Verse 7, expands on the split of the Zadok priesthood and what the results of this split in the priestly line were. So let's read it. Again, we're going to start in Book 11, Chapter 7, Verse 1 of Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews. When Eliashib, the high priest, was dead, his son Judas... Another name for Yoyada, because we just saw that Yoyada succeeded his father Eliashib in the high priesthood. So Yoyada is the same as Judas here. And he succeeded in the high priesthood. And when he was dead, his son John, which is Jonathan, took that dignity, on whose account it was also that Bagasus, the general of another Artaxerxes' army polluted the temple and imposed tributes on the Jews that out of the public stock, before they offered the daily sacrifices, they should pay for every lamb fifty shekels. Now Joshua was the brother of John. It says here, so Jesus was the brother of John, and I assume that was Joshua. 
and was a friend of Bagasus, who had promised to procure him the high priesthood, in confidence of whose support Jesus, or Joshua, quarreled with John, or Jonathan, in the temple, and so provoked his brother, that in his anger his brother, Jonathan, slew him, Jesus, or Joshua. Now it was a horrible thing for John, Jonathan, when he was high priest, to perpetrate so great a crime, and so much the more horrible, that there never was so cruel and impious a thing done, neither by the Greeks nor barbarians. However, God did not neglect its punishment, but the people were on that very account enslaved, and the temple was polluted by the Persians. Now when Bagasus, the general of Artaxerxes' army, knew that John, or Jonathan, the high priest of the Jews, had slain his own brother, Jesus, or Joshua, in the temple, he came upon the Jews immediately and began in anger to say to them, Have you had the impudence to perpetrate a murder in your temple? And as he was aiming to go into the temple, they forbade him to do so. But he said to them, Am not I purer than he that was slain in the temple? And when he had said these words, he went into the temple. Accordingly, Bagasus made use of this pretense and punished the Jews seven years for the murder of Jesus or Joshua. So I assume that is why Jonathan is left out of the lineage leading up to his son in the verses that we read in Nehemiah, which talk about this split of the two brothers. So Jonathan's sons are the brothers that Nehemiah was talking about, but contributed to his father, Yoyada, as his sons, therefore skipping Jonathan altogether. Continuing on in Josephus. Now when John, or Jonathan, had departed this life, he died. His son, Jadua, succeeded in the high priesthood. He had a brother whose name was Manasseh. So these are the two brothers that were talked about in Nehemiah. Now there was one, Sanballat, who was sent by Darius, the last king of Persia, into Samaria. He was a Kuthim by birth, of which stock were the Samaritans also. This man, Sanballat, knew that the city of Jerusalem was a famous city and that their kings had given a great deal of trouble to the Assyrians and the people of Cilicia, so that he willingly gave his daughter, whose name was Nicasso, in marriage to Manasseh, as thinking this alliance by marriage would be a pledge and security that the nation of the Jews should continue their good will to him. So Sanballat was a Samaritan. Manasseh and Jadua were brothers, sons of Jonathan the high priest. Jadua succeeded Jonathan in the high priesthood, and his brother Manasseh married the daughter of a Samaritan, Sanballat, who was put in charge of Samaria by the king of Syria, or the king of Persia, I mean. Continuing on in chapter 8 of Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews, concerning Sanballat and Manasseh and the temple which they built on Mount Gerizim, as also how Alexander, and this would be Alexander the Great, made his entry into the city Jerusalem and what benefits he bestowed upon the Jews. This is where it gets interesting. About this time it was that Philip, king of Macedon, was treacherously assaulted and slain at Ege by Pausanias, the son of Serastus, who was derived from the family of Oreste, and his son Alexander, Alexander the Great, succeeded him in the kingdom, who, passing over the Hellespont, overcame the generals of Darius' army in a battle fought at Granicium. So he marched over Lydia and subdued Ionia and overran Caria and fell upon the places of Pamphylia 
as has been related elsewhere. But the elders of Jerusalem, being very uneasy that the brother of Jadua, the high priest, though married to a foreigner, should be a partner with him in the high priesthood, quarreled with him. So the elders of Jerusalem quarreled with Manasseh, the brother of Jadua, because he married a foreigner. For they esteemed this man's marriage a step to such as should be desirous of transgressing about the marriage of strange wives, and that this would be the beginning of a mutual society with foreigners, although the offense of some about marriages and their having married wives that were not of their own country had been an occasion of their former captivity and of the miseries they had then undergone." So they commanded Manasseh to divorce his wife, or not to approach the altar. The high priest himself, which would be Jadua his brother, joining with the people in their indignation against his brother Manasseh, and driving him away from the altar. Whereupon Manasseh came to his father-in-law Sanballat the Samaritan, and told him that although he loved his daughter Nicasso, yet he was not willing to be deprived of his sacerdotal dignity on her account, which was the principal dignity of their nation and always continued in the same family. This would be the priesthood. Even though his brother was the high priest, he was still brother to the high priest, so he still had priestly duties that he was not willing to forego. And then Sanballat promised him not only to preserve to him the honor of his priesthood, but to procure for him the power and dignity of a high priest, and would make him governor of all the places he himself now ruled, which was Samaria, or the Samaritans, if he would keep his daughter for his wife. He also told him further that he would build him a temple like that at Jerusalem upon Mount Gerizini or Gerizim which is the highest of all the mountains that are in Samaria. And he promised that he would do this with the approbation of Darius the king. Manasseh was elevated with these promises and stayed with Sanballat upon a supposal that he should gain a high priesthood as bestowed on him by Darius. For it happened that Sanballat was then in years." But there was now a great disturbance among the people of Jerusalem because many of those priests and Levites were entangled in such matches, for they all revolted to Manasseh, and Sanballat afforded them money and divided among them land for tillage and habitations also, and all this in order every way to gratify his son-in-law Manasseh. So evidently, a lot of priests were married to foreigners, and they also left with Manasseh and went over to Sanballat and the Samaritans, who then built a temple like the temple in Jerusalem up on Mount Gerizim. So Manasseh was brother to the high priest. He was of the line of Zadok, and he married a Samaritan and became the Samaritan high priest. Continuing on. About this time, it was that Darius heard how Alexander the Great had passed over the Hellespont and had beaten his lieutenants in the battle at Grenechium, and was proceeding further, whereupon he gathered together an army of horse and foot, and determined that he would meet the Macedonians before they should assault and conquer all Asia. So he passed over the river Euphrates and came over Taurus and Sicilian Mountain, 
and at issue of Cilicia, he waited for the enemy, as ready there to give him battle, upon which Sanballat was glad that Darius was come down, and told Manasseh that he would suddenly perform his promises to him, and this as soon as ever Darius should come back, after he had beaten his enemies, for not he only, but all those that were in Asia also, were persuaded that the Macedonians would not so much as come to battle with the Persians on account of their multitude. But the event proved otherwise than they expected, for the king joined battle with the Macedonians, and of course, again, the Macedonians were Alexander the Great, and was beaten and lost a great part of his army. His mother also and his wife and children were taken captives, and he fled into Persia. So Alexander the Great came into Syria and took Damascus. And when he had obtained Sidon, he besieged Tyre. When he sent all epistle to the Jewish high priest to send him some auxiliaries and to supply his army with provisions, and that what presents he formerly sent to Darius, he would now send to him. So Alexander the Great sent to the Jews and said, Okay, now you're serving me. These are the Jews of Jerusalem. Now you're serving me. Send the presents and everything you would have sent to Darius. Send them to me. And choose the friendship of the Macedonians, and that he should never repent of doing so. But the high priest answered the messengers that he had given his oath to Darius not to bear arms against Darius, and he said that he would not transgress this while Darius was in the land of the living. So the high priest in Jerusalem said, I can't go against my word to Darius as long as Darius is alive. That was his answer to Alexander the Great. Upon hearing this answer, Alexander was very angry, and though he determined not to leave Tyre, which was just ready to be taken, yet as soon as he had taken it, he threatened that he would make an expedition against the Jewish high priest, and of course this Jewish high priest again was Jadua, the brother of Manasseh, and through him teach all men whom they must keep their oaths. So when he had, with a good deal of pains, during the siege taken Tyre and had settled its affairs, he came to the city of Gaza and besieged both the city and him that was governor of the garrison, whose name was Babamesis. But Sanballat thought he had now gotten a proper opportunity to make his attempt. So he renounced Darius. Now Sanballat is renouncing Darius and taking with him 7,000 of his own subjects, the Samaritans. He came to Alexander and finding him beginning the siege of Tyre, he said to him that he delivered up to him these men who came out of places under his dominion and did gladly accept him. So this is Sanballat gladly accepting Alexander the Great, for his lord instead of Darius. So when Alexander had received him kindly, Sanballat thereupon took courage and spoke to him about his present affair. He told him that he had a son-in-law, Manasseh, who was the brother of the high priest Jadua in Jerusalem, and that there were many others of his own nation now with him that were desirous to have a temple in the places subject to him, subject to Alexander the Great that it would be for the king's advantage to have the strength of the Jews divided into two parts, lest when the nation is of one mind and united upon any attempt for innovation, it proved troublesome to kings. So here is Sanballat using two brothers from the high priesthood of Zadok to split or to keep split the kingdom of Israel. The Samaritans with their 
Zadok high priest Manasseh against the southern kingdom of Judea with the actual true high priest Jadua, Manasseh's brother out of high priest Jonathan. Whereupon Alexander gave Sanballat leave to do so, who used the utmost diligence and built the temple and made Manasseh the priest, and deemed it a great reward that his daughter's children should have that dignity. But when the seven months of the siege of Tyre were over, and the two months of the siege of Gaza were over, Sanballat died. Now Alexander the Great, when he had taken Gaza, made haste to go up to Jerusalem. And Jadua, the high priest in Jerusalem, when he heard that, was in agony and under terror, as not knowing how he should meet the Macedonians, since the king was displeased at his foregoing disobedience. He therefore ordained that the people should make supplications and should join him in offering sacrifice to Elohim, or God, it says here, whom he besought to protect that nation and to deliver them from the perils that were coming upon them. Whereupon God warned him in a dream, warned Jadua the high priest in a dream, which came upon him after he had offered sacrifice that he should take courage and adorn the city and open the gates that the rest should appear in white garments, but that he and the priests should meet the king in the habits proper to their order, meaning in the priestly garments. So all the people were to dress in white and he and his co-priests, the high priest and his associate priests were to dress in the priestly garments without the dread of any ill consequences which the providence of God would prevent. Upon which, when he, Jadua the high priest, rose from his sleep, he greatly rejoiced and declared to all the warning that he had received from God, according to which dream he acted entirely, and so waited for the coming of the king, which is, of course, King Alexander the Great. And when he understood that he was not far from the city, he went out in procession. So when Alexander the Great came near the city, Jadua, the high priest, and his associate priests went out to meet Alexander the Great in procession dressed in their priestly garments. He went with the other priests and the multitude of the citizens. The procession was venerable, and the manner of it different from that of the other nations. It reached to a place called Safa, which name, translated into Greek, signifies a prospect, for you have thence a prospect both of Jerusalem and of the temple. And when the Phoenicians and the Chaldeans that followed him thought they should have liberty to plunder the city, so this is when the Phoenicians and the Chaldeans that were following Alexander the Great thought they were going to get to plunder the city of Jerusalem and torment the high priest to death, which the king's displeasure fairly promised them, the very reverse of it happened. For Alexander, when he saw the multitude at a distance in white garments, while the priests stood clothed in the fine linen, and the high priest in purple and scarlet clothing, with his mitre on his head, having the golden plate whereupon the name of Elohim was engraved, he approached by himself. So Alexander the Great approached by himself and adored that name, and first saluted the high priest. The Jews also did all together with one voice salute Alexander, and encompass him about, whereupon the kings of Syria and the rest were surprised at what Alexander had done, and supposed him disordered in his mind. However, Parmenio alone went up with him, and asked him how it came to pass, when all the others adored him, he should adore the high priest of the Jews, to whom he replied, 
I did not adore him, but that God who has honored him with his high priesthood. For I saw this very person in a dream, in this very habit or this very clothing, when I was at Dios in Macedonia, who, when I was considering with myself how I might obtain the dominion of Asia, he exhorted me to make no delay, but boldly to pass over the sea thither, for that he would conduct my army, and would give me the dominion over the Persians. Whence it is that, having seen no other in that habit or in this clothing, and now seeing this person dressed like this, and remembering that vision that I was given by God, and the exhortation which I had in my dream, I believe that I bring this army under the divine conduct and shall therewith conquer Darius and destroy the power of the Persians, and that all things will succeed according to what is in my own mind. And when he had said this to Parmenio and had given the high priest his right hand, the priests ran along by him and he came into the city. And when he went up into the temple, he offered sacrifice to Elohim according to the high priest's direction." and magnificently treated both the high priest and the priests. And when the book of Daniel was showed him, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that himself was the person intended. And as he was then glad, he dismissed the multitude for the present. But the next day he called them unto him, and bid them ask what favors they pleased of him, whereupon the high priest, and this is Jedua again, desired that they might enjoy the laws of their forefathers and might pay no tribute on the seventh year. He granted all they desired, and when they entreated him that he would permit the Jews in Babylon and Media to enjoy their own laws also, he willingly promised to do hereafter what they desired. And when he said to the multitude that if any of them would enlist themselves in his army on this condition that they should continue under the laws of their forefathers and live according to them, he was willing to take them with him. Many were ready to accompany him in his wars. So when Alexander the Great had thus settled matters at Jerusalem, he led his army into the neighboring cities. And when all the inhabitants to whom he came received him with great kindness, the Samaritans, who had then Shechem for their metropolis, a city situate at Mount Gerizim, and inhabited by apostates of the Jewish nation, seeing that Alexander had so greatly honored the Jews, they determined to profess themselves Jews, for such is the disposition of the Samaritans, as we have already elsewhere declared, that when the Jews are in adversity, they deny that they are akin to them, and then they confess the truth. But when they perceive that some good fortune has befallen the Jews, they immediately pretend to have communion with them, saying that they belong to them, and derive their genealogy from the posterity of Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. Accordingly, they made their address to the king with splendor, and showed great alacrity in meeting him at a little distance from Jerusalem. And when Alexander the Great had commended them, the Shechemites approached him, taking with them the troops that Sanballat had sent him, and they desired that he would come to their city and do honor to their temple also, to whom he promised that when he returned he would come to them. And when they petitioned that he would remit the tribute of the seventh year to them also, because they did but so thereupon, he asked who they were that they made such a petition. And when they said that they were Hebrews, but had the name Sidonians living at Shechem, 
he asked them again whether they were Jews. And when they said they were not Jews, it was to the Jews, he said, that I granted that privilege. However, when I return and am thoroughly informed by you of this matter, I will do what I shall think proper. And in this manner he took leave of the Shechemites, but ordered that the troops of Sanballat should follow him into Egypt, because there he designed to give them lands, which he did a little after Thebes, when he ordered them to guard that country. Now when Alexander was dead, the government was parted among his successors, but the temple upon Mount Gerizim in Samaria remained. And if any one were accused by those of Jerusalem of having eaten things common, or of having broken the Sabbath, or of any other crime of the like nature, he fled away to the Shechemites." and said that he was accused unjustly. About this time it was that Jadua, the high priest, died, and Ananias, his son, took the high priesthood. This was the state of affairs of the people of Jerusalem at this time. So we can see that Jadua and Manasseh were brothers. They were both sons of Jonathan, the high priest, who was in the direct high priest lineage of Zadok, according to both Scripture and Josephus. Jadua succeeded his father Jonathan as high priest in Jerusalem, while Manasseh married Sanballat's daughter, who was a Samaritan, and he then became the high priest of the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim, after he would not divorce his Samaritan pagan wife. Manasseh was also a son of Zadok and son of high priest Jonathan, brother of the high priest in Jerusalem, Jadua, who was also the son of Jonathan. Hence, the Samaritan line of the quote-unquote sons of Zadok begins here. This is where the line of Zadok split. Manasseh became an apostate high priest in Samaria at a temple on Mount Gerizim, while Jadua, his brother, was the legitimate high priest in Jerusalem. Now let's listen to some of a Dead Sea Scrolls lecture by Gary A. Rensberg, and this comes from The Great Courses and is narrated by Gary A. Rensberg as well, and you can find this on Audible. And we're going to listen to a part in regards to the similarities between Samaritan writings and the writings of the Dead Sea Scroll community rules. This lecture concerns the dialect of Hebrew used in the Dead Sea Scrolls, what scholars call Qumran Hebrew, an important subject, as we shall see. Qumran Hebrew includes grammatical forms unlike those found in any other variety of ancient Hebrew. They are absent from earlier biblical Hebrew, from the roughly contemporary sources, such as the Book of Ben Sirah, and from the later Mishnaic Hebrew, the language of the Mishnah and other rabbinic texts. What is the origin of these forms? While much debate about Qumran Hebrew, Hebrew swirls in scholarly circles, we will follow the approach which understands this dialect as an anti-language. This term refers to the sociolinguistic phenomenon of a specific sect or group using in-language in order to distinguish its dialect from that of the out-group, that is, the majority population we will realize the extent to which the Qumran sectarians attempted to distinguish themselves from the general Jewish population, which no doubt used a more standard Hebrew. That is to say, not only was their legal practice and belief system different, even their Hebrew dialect was different. 
the specific Hebrew dialect used to write the majority of the Dead Sea Scrolls is a different Hebrew register than all other Hebrew varieties known to us. Let me review for you here our other sources of ancient Hebrew. We begin with biblical Hebrew, the language of the books of the Bible, divided into two strata. First, standard biblical Hebrew used down to the time of the exile. That is from about 1000 BCE until the 6th century BCE. And standard biblical Hebrew is used to compose the Torah, the historical books such as Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, books of the prophets such as Amos, Hosea, and Isaiah, and more. The second stratum we call late biblical Hebrew, used from the time of the exile in the 6th century BCE, let's say 550 to give it a rough date, down to the end of the biblical period, and then slightly into the post-biblical period, around 200 BCE. Late biblical Hebrew is used to compose books such as Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Chronicles, and others. Moving further chronologically, towards the present, we then come to some letters written by Simeon Bar Kokhba and his contemporaries in the years 132 to 135 CE, also discovered in caves near the Dead Sea, though further south in the Ein Gedi region. These Bar Kokhba letters are written in a Hebrew with some similarities to the language of the Mishnah, which brings us to the next category of texts for the history of the Hebrew language. The very large rabbinic corpus, especially the Mishnah and the re related companion volume, the Tosefta, both from approximately 200 of the Common Era, these works are written in a dialect called Mishnaic Hebrew, after the main rabbinic work, the Mishnah, and this dialect diverges considerably from the old biblical Hebrew standard. Most likely this dialect, Mishnaic Hebrew, grew out of the everyday spoken colloquial Hebrew as opposed to the literary register used to compose the biblical books. The Qumran community refers to its opponents as using what to their mind was an inferior brand of Hebrew. The following phrases appear in the Dead Sea Scrolls to refer to their opponents or their manner of Hebrew. Lashon Acheret, another tongue. Arul Safa, uncircumcised of lip. Loeg Safa, disparaging lip. Those three occur in the Thanksgiving hymns document. And then a fourth phrase, Lashon Gidufim, tongue of scorners, that occurs in both the Serach Hayachad, 1QS, the community rule, and in the Damascus document. But the Qumran community could not use simple biblical Hebrew either, either the standard biblical Hebrew of earlier times or the late biblical Hebrew of, later, later, of the later biblical period, for this variety of Hebrew was the inheritance of all Jews. The Qumran community, the Yachad, thus devised their own variety of Hebrew with its own vocabulary and its own grammar. Linguists refer to this phenomenon as linguistic ideology, and they use the expression anti-language to refer to the idiom developed by the in-group. One can find examples of this phenomenon in various places, in urban settings especially. 
Take, for example, Cockney English. Indeed, all sorts of coded language exist in the world of criminals, in the realm of prostitutes, and in drug culture, as scholars of sociolinguistics have noticed. Most striking is the phenomenon noticed by those who study modern-day cults. That is, they too tend to construct an in-group language. This point, this point was emphasized in the research of Margaret Singer. This is not to say that the Qumran community is akin to a modern-day cult, but the analogy that I'm presenting here for you may be helpful. My friend and colleague, William Schneiderwin of UCLA, adopted the term linguistic ideology or anti-language. He took this approach and he applied it to Qumran Hebrew. And I, for one, fully subscribe to his considerations here about this variety of Hebrew, which we call Qumran Hebrew or the Hebrew of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Let me give you some examples of anti-language within Qumran Hebrew. Then, the Dead Sea Scrolls use a whole array of archaisms to give a patina of antiquity and thus authority to their literature. First example, Biblical Hebrew has two forms for his father. There is an archaic form, pronounced avihu, used only seven times in the Bible, and then the standard form, aviv, used 217 times in the Bible. Amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls, however, the scribes clearly favor the first of these. They use avihu 24 times, while the word aviv is used only three times. A second example. Biblical Hebrew has an archaic form, lamo, which means to them. It's used 57 times in the biblical corpus, but only in poetry, which naturally uses a more archaic idiom. That's a, a linguistic universal. Poetry is typically written in a more archaic style. Therefore, it's not surprising to see this archaic form, lamo, to them or for them, used only in poetry in the Bible. In Qumran Hebrew, however, this form becomes rather standard. It's used 22 times, mainly in prose texts, and thus it appears in the Damascus document, the Community Rule, the War Scroll, the Pesher Havakuk, all texts which we have read during our course. A third example. The form El is a term for God in Biblical Hebrew, used mainly in poetry, again as an archaism. In Qumran Hebrew, it is used exceedingly commonly, almost beyond counting. For example, 11 times in the first column of the Community Rule, seven times in the first column of the War Scroll. Other Jews, by contrast, were using the longer form, Elohim, to refer to God. They did not use this shorter form, El, which was being used by the Qumran scribes. A pseudo-archaism occurs in these documents when the adverbial suffix ah, this is known from Biblical Hebrew, is attached to a host of other adverbs, even when it does not belong there. Thus, for example, in Biblical Hebrew, there's a word sham, it means there, and then there's a word shama, with the ending ah, and it means whither, or to there. But since the latter form, shama, has an air of superior language, the Qumran scribes would use this latter form, shama, even when the former, sham, 
was called for according to the strict grammatical rules. Finally, there is the very strange Qumran Hebrew usage of adding ah to pronoun forms as well. We saw a few moments ago how they took this adverbial ah and put it where it didn't belong. They took the same ah and they added it to pronoun forms. Thus, for example, while all other forms of ancient Hebrew, in fact, down to modern Hebrew, use the word who for the pronoun he and he for the pronoun she, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we encounter the forms. Can you predict them already now that you get the trend here? Hua and hia. Similar, similarly, while all other forms of Hebrew use atem for the second person masculine plural pronoun, that is you, masculine plural, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we encounter the form atema, again with the addition of the ah suffix. The feminine equivalent, by the way, is unattested in our Qumran corpus of texts. Note the additional ah, hua, hia, and atema, similar to the suffixed ah that we mentioned for the form shama. All of this once more sounds very strange to the Hebrew ear. The Qumran sectarians developed their unique pronoun forms that would distinguish them very clearly. Thus, hua, hia, atema, along with other similar forms, and we see these throughout their documents. The use of anti-language by the Qumran group demonstrates to what extent the Yahad saw itself as different from the other Jewish groups of the time. They accentuated these differences even to the extent of linguistic usage. As I have said, this variety of, of Hebrew is unknown from anywhere else in ancient times. There is one feature, however, which I have mentioned that does occur elsewhere, namely the unusual second-person masculine plural pronoun atema, that is, you, masculine plural, along with the corresponding possessive form, kima, that is, your, masculine plural. These forms are attested not only at Qumran, but in Samaritan Hebrew as well, that is, the dialect used by the Samaritans. You will recall that the Samaritans are an offshoot of Judaism who express their individuality in different ways, most prominently by rejecting Jerusalem and honoring Mount Gerizim, where they had their own temple with their own altar, with their own priests, offering the sacrifices to the God of Israel. Could the Samaritans also have engaged in an anti-language usage in order to distinguish themselves from general Judaism? Is that how the pronoun usage in both Qumran Hebrew and Samaritan Hebrew is to be explained? Were both of these groups, the Yahad members and the Samaritans, seeking to differentiate themselves through the use of language? Some mornings I wake up and think that the answer to this question is yes. These two groups share this goal, using language as a mark of distinction vis-a-vis -vis other Jews of this time period. So here we saw that Qumran Hebrew had some similarities to Samaritan Hebrew, whereas it had no similarities to other forms of Hebrew at the time.
Next, we'll listen to what Mr. Rensberg has to say about the calendar scroll, and then we're going to look at a scholarly publication that compares the Qumran writings, the Qumran scrolls, to the Samaritan writings. As we have noted already in our course, the Dead Sea Scrolls reveal that the Qumran community utilized a different calendar from other Jews at the time. While the standard calendar was a lunisolar one, that is, lunar months with necessary adjustments to the solar year, the Qumran sect utilized a strictly solar calendar. The latter calendar, the solar one, is also reflected in the post-biblical books of Enoch and Jubilees, both of which are well represented among the Qumran manuscripts, as we saw in the previous lecture. An alternative calendar based strictly on the solar cycle, however, developed in late antiquity. This system has 52 weeks, each of which is comprised of seven days. 52 times seven gives you a total of 364 days. Apparently, there were 12 months of 30 days each, not connected to the lunar cycle, for a total of 360 days, with an additional day added for each of the four seasons, bringing the total to 364 days. Now, with this system, since 364 is divisible by 7, this means that the holidays will always occur on the same day of the week each year. For example, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Torah tells us it occurs on the 10th day of the 7th month, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 27. If you use the system I'm describing now, the Day of Atonement will always occur on a Friday. And the first day of Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, a seven or eight day festival also described in Leviticus chapter 23, which commences on the 15th day of the seventh month, this holiday of Sukkot will always occur on a Wednesday, and so on. Most interestingly and quite logically, the Jewish New Year, according to the system, the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, occurs on a Wednesday. Why a Wednesday? Because the sun and the moon, go back to Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account, the sun and the moon were created on day 4, that is to say, a Wednesday. Of course, a 364-day system means that each calendar year falls one and one-fourth days short of the actual solar year, which we all know to be 365 and a quarter days. We have no idea how this, how this system compensated for this small difference of a day and a quarter. In any given two or three year span of time, this would have been only a very, very slight difference. Passover would still be falling in the springtime, commemorating the spring harvest of barley. Shavuot would still be in the early summer, commemorating the wheat and the first fruits. And Sukkot, the great fall harvest, would still be in the fall. But over the course of decades, over the course of much longer spans of time, that one and one quarter day difference would have amounted to a considerable difference with such passing of time. In addition, in this system, no leap day is possible. Since this would upset the entire system, where would Sabbath fall if you inserted an extra day? One would need an eight-day week at some point, presumably, obviously an impossibility, and all the holidays would be off. So you cannot insert a leap day. The solar calendar that I've been describing to you is reflected in the Book of Enoch and the Book of Jubilees, 
And as we learned from the sectarian documents among the Dead Sea Scrolls, this same calendar is used in Qumran as well. This will explain why many Dead Sea Scroll texts castigate the sect's opponents for celebrating the holidays on the wrong dates. A key passage, for example, is found in the Damascus document. Quote, they shall keep the Sabbath day according to its exact interpretation, and the feasts and the day of fasting according to the finding of the members of the new covenant in the land of Damascus. That's from the Damascus document, column six. By the way, this devotion to the solar calendar may be related to a passage from Josephus that we read earlier when we explored the topic of daily life at Qumran. Let me read that passage for you again now. The passage from Josephus, it's from the Jewish War, book two. He writes, and as for their piety towards God, it is very extraordinary, for before sunrise they speak not a word about profane matters, but offer certain prayers which they have received from their forefathers as if they made a supplication for its rising, with the its referring to the sun. Do you remember when we read this earlier? I didn't make the comment then, but let's do it now. Look at the emphasis on the sun. They are making supplication, as it were, for the sun to rise. That ties in, in my estimation, to the whole concept of using a solar calendar. So we can see here that the solar calendar could have been connected with sun worship by the inhabitants of the Qumran community. Let's read an article about solar deities being found in early Jewish synagogues throughout Israel. The article that I'm reading is from the Jewish news site Haaretz, and it's called The Metamorphosis of the Sun God in Ancient Synagogues in Israel. What are the zodiac and other images doing in those bastions of monotheism? The answer lies in a Judaism we don't know anymore. At least seven synagogues in Israel built 1500 to 1700 years ago feature mosaics of the zodiac of all things. The zodiac symbols are in a circle surrounding what appears to be the Greek sun god Helios. The circle is typically enclosed within a square with human figures representing the four seasons at its corners. Some of the mosaics also show the moon and stars. Apparently, later generations were appalled as today's rabbis would be if somebody drew pigs on the synagogue floor. In some cases, the depicted deity and personified seasons in the mosaics have been defaced. The synagogues in question are at Beit Alpha, Zippori, Hamat, Tiberias, Josepha, and Hukok in the north, and Susia and Naran in the west bank. The question is what these pagan images were doing there, positioned smack in the entrance to the houses of worship. Except at Zippori, you couldn't miss them. At the time, it was evidently considered permissible to use imagery of people, animals, and even pagan gods as long as it was in the service of Jewish tradition and adopted Jewish meanings, says Professor Moti Aviam, an archaeologist at Kinneret College and an expert on ancient religious structures. Skipping down, the article asks, how did imagery become acceptable in synagogues? The answer lies in the kind of Judaism practiced in these synagogues. It was not 
not rabbinic Judaism, which would eventually become Judaism as we know it, but at the time was only taking shape on the sidelines of the Jewish world. The Jews who prayed in these and other synagogues belonged to what was then the mainstream of Judaism, but is now long forgotten, Hellenistic Judaism. Hellenistic Judaism began to take shape in Ptolemaic Egypt, 305 to 30 BCE, and quickly spread throughout the eastern Mediterranean. Jewish soldiers stationed throughout the territories of the Ptolemaic and Seleucid empires took this form of Judaism to far-flung regions such as Cyrene, now in Libya, Cyprus, Syria, and Asia Minor. There, these communities, which were initially very small, grew rapidly, perhaps becoming as large as half the urban population by the end of the first century current era. Skipping further down, as Roman religion was changing, so too was the religion of Judea. Following the destruction of the Second Temple Judaism in the disastrous anti-Roman revolts in the 60s and 130s CE, the dominant form of Judaism practiced in Judea at the time, a Judaism centered around the temple, disappeared. Hellenistic Judaism became the dominant form of Judaism in the Holy Land in the following centuries, as the Mosaic-adorned synagogues attest. These shuls and their mosaics only seem strange when compared to the later synagogues of Rabbinic Judaism, but they are perfectly in line with the Roman cults of the period. Indeed, Hellenistic Judaism is best understood as a Roman cult. The comparison of Hellenistic Judaism and Roman Mithraism is especially intriguing. Hundreds of Mithrae, caves or rooms designed to look like caves in which Roman adherents of the cult practiced Mithraism's mysteries have been discovered. These bear some resemblance to the Hellenistic synagogues. Interesting to note that this Hellenistic, Judaistic Mithraism was practiced in caves. Continuing on. Among the relevant similarities are the portrayal of Mithra as a solar deity on a horse-drawn chariot and astral imagery including the signs of the zodiac. So in this respect, the existence of the zodiac and the portrayal of the Jewish god as a solar deity in synagogues was in line with the general thrust of Roman religion during the period. Hellenistic Judaism was very different from the rabbinic Judaism that would later supplant it. Prayer and reading of scripture was in Greek, not Hebrew. The practices and beliefs were also very different if we take the writing of the first century philosopher Philo as representative. Though lacking any central leadership, the rituals probably varied quite a bit from community to community. Also, a synagogue was headed not by a rabbi, but by an archisynagogos, head of the synagogue, and a council of elders, presbyteroi. This form of Judaism is alien to us because it did not last. After flowering in the 4th and 5th centuries, as attested by the synagogues built in this period, Hellenistic Judaism collapsed and disappeared together with the Roman society in which it existed. Hellenistic Judaism disappeared for many reasons. Sadly, at the end of this article, it talks about evolution, which should not be promoted in Jewish theology either. So Jewish theology, definitely like Christian theology, has been off track for quite some time. Though it seems to me Hellenistic Judaism was, of course, akin to Roman sun god worship, just as by the 3rd century CE, Christianity had also strayed far from 
its original Jewish identity off into Mithraism and also sun god worship. In one last section of this lecture, we're going to listen to how he describes one of the Hasmonean kings destroying the Samaritan temple off of Mount Gerizim during the Hasmonean period. Let's return to our narrative of the Hasmonean dynasty. The next king who rules is a king named John Hyrcanus. Under his reign, Judea expanded greatly, and John Hyrcanus con conquered, in fact, other lands, including Edomia, the old land of Edom, as it's called in the Bible, now called Edomia. And these people, the Edomians, were forcibly converted to Judaism under John Hyrcanus. It's actually the only time in history that the Jews ever conquered another people and converted them to their own religion. John Hyrcanus also, con also conquered the area of Samaria to the north, at which point he destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. Next, and in conclusion of this series of messages, we will read a scholarly article which can be found at jstor.org. jstor.org describes itself as providing access to more than 12 million scholarly journal articles, books, images, and primary sources in 75 disciplines. The journal article I will be reading excerpts from was written by Josephine Massingbird Ford professor emerita of theology at the University of Notre Dame, and is entitled, Can We Exclude Samaritan Influence from Qumran? This 21-page article was published in 1967 issue of Review de Qumran, Volume 6, Number 1. It begins by citing several works by John Bowman, the main one of which is entitled Contact Between Samaritan Sects and Qumran in Vitus Testamentum, 8, 1957, and another work by John MacDonald entitled The Theology of the Samaritans, London, 1964. The article begins as follows. The identity of the Qumran sectaries with the Essenes has now been accepted by the majority of scholars, indeed so far that some have almost omitted all discussion of the matter from their works and speak without qualification of the, quote, Essenes of Qumran. This paper will not seek to dispute this identity, but to question whether it is sufficient to look for one type of Judaism at Qumran and to make it stand in contrast to other branches of the Jewish faith. The paper will argue that here we have an Essenism predating Philo and Josephus, in which we may see elements akin to Samaritan theology and a Judaism which represents no distinct division between the northern and southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom became eventually identified with the Samaritans, but our knowledge of Judaism in the second to third century before Christ is too meager for us to state definitively that Jews and Samaritans were without reciprocal influences, especially in view of their common heritages through the Old Testament and liturgical rites. Skipping down a bit, both kingdoms suffered from the common foe in the 2nd and 1st centuries BC. The Samaritans suffered under Antiochus and John Hyrcanus destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim in 126 BC. This naturally caused a crisis among the Samaritans. Bowman quotes Yusuf B. Salama, 
When the temple was destroyed, some people did not see the need to make a pilgrimage to the mountain or to worship there. They said to worship in a synagogue was enough, and then comments that it was probably at that time that the sect of the Docythians began. This sect denied the sanctity of Mount Gerizim, emphasized praying in water, and held beliefs in the resurrection of the dead and a messiah. They also had extra-biblical books. Thus, Docythians may be an example of peoples of Samaritan origin who were content to abandon Mount Gerizim. Skipping down a paragraph, Indeed, it may well be that Josephus, three divisions of the Jewish faith, namely Sadducees, Pharisees, and Essenes, may be Sadducees, Pharisees, and Samaritans. MacDonald notes that the Samaritan Chronicle, too, speaks of three classes of Israelites during the period before Christ, Pharisees, the enemy, Sadducees, said to be the later Karaites, and Hasidim, said to be the Samaritans. Skipping down another paragraph, the recent discoveries of cross, of Samaritan skeletons, jewelry, pottery, papyri, property deeds, and marriage contracts in a cave near Jericho has added evidence that the Samaritans were not a poor and insignificant people, that they married Greeks and were to some extent Hellenized, but also that they were practicing Jews at the time of Alexandria. Some of them must have lived near Jericho. The latter fact is certainly not without significance for the influence on the sectarians of Qumran nearby. The paper will now ask what Samaritan thought is discernible in the Qumran writings. The Samaritan material on which one is obliged to work is unfortunately late. The writer uses mainly the Memar Marka, which MacDonald would date late 3rd century or early 4th century A.D., but which contains material and ideas of much greater antiquity. The writer would concur to some extent with Gaster, who believed that about the 1st century A.D., the Samaritan beliefs and practices may have become fossilized and remained practically unchanged down to this very day. Skipping down a bit, MacDonald has observed that the care with which the Samaritan scribes copied their precious law is matched only by that of the Judaist scribes or by the best scribes of the ancient Qumran community. Skipping to the next paragraph, among the biblical manuscripts found at Qumran, some versions reflect such traditions as that found in the Samaritan Pentateuch. There is evidence of the archaic Hebrew script used by the Samaritans and there are affinities with the Samaritan dialect in the language of the scrolls, as we saw earlier. Skipping down a bit, attention has been drawn to the fact that some of the graves at Qumran lie north to south instead of the more usual east to west. The present writer would like to suggest that one might consider that they are turned with the corpse's feet towards Mount Gerizim. This is and was the custom of the Samaritans to turn the feet of dying men, women, and children toward the holy mount. Then the oration of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, 1-43, was recited. Added to this, the Samaritans did not seem to mind the proximity of graves, for some of their holiest men were buried on Mount Gerizim itself. 
Further, whether one accept the treasure scroll as fact or fiction, it is interesting to note that the treasures are buried both near Jerusalem and near Mount Gerizim. MacDonald points out that there was a legend of the hidden sanctuary which was current among the Samaritans about the first century AD. If the Qumran sectarians were only Jews, why should they trouble about treasure buried in a defiled land? Skipping down a paragraph, moreover, it is important to notice that nowhere in the Qumran literature are the Samaritans criticized. This is in contrast to the Mishnah, Talmud, Midrashim, etc. Although the actual name Samaritan does not occur in Qumran literature, yet one can find titles corresponding to those by which the Samaritans designated themselves. The Samaritans called themselves the keepers of the law. Now it is precisely this keeping of the law which is the reason deter of the Qumran community. Further, the title Sons of Light used by Qumran and the Samaritans has been noted by Bowman. It is consonant with the Samaritan idea of the pure light which was handed down through the righteous ancestors and enjoyed by the elect, that is, the Samaritans. Akin to this idea is the title, the pure one, and the saints, which were used by both communities. However, the most compelling designation shared both by the Qumran sectarians and the Samaritans is the, quote-unquote, sons of Zadok. It is agreed that the Qumran sectarians could not be Sadducees. The Samaritans, however, claimed, and still claim, that their priests are descended from Aaron and presumably from the Jewish post-exilic Zadokite high priest Eliashab of Jerusalem, whose grandson married Sanballat's daughter, as we discussed earlier. Even today, the Samaritan priests appear to be the only descendants of Zadok who still act as sacrificial priests. That is, they are the only Hebrew priests in the world today. Bowman remarks that Ezekiel's claims for the Zadokites provided ammunition for the Samaritans and strengthened the claims of the Damascus and Dead Sea sectaries. However, it is possible to equate the two. The Zadokite priesthood at Qumran might well be the common priesthood shared by certain Samaritans and certain Jews. The Samaritan Zadokite priesthood was the only priesthood to remain after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It seems, therefore, that this sectarian movement by the Dead Sea should not entirely be equated more with the Essenes. The Essenes were not called the sons of Zadok and were not especially a priestly caste. Added to this, some had connections with Jerusalem. Nowhere is it recorded that they were hostile to Jerusalem. They must be people not accepting the Jerusalem priesthood. We can go no further than that. The Damascus Document We ask now whether the Damascus Document could be of Samaritan Jewish origin. It does not seem necessary to try to allegorize the phrase Land of Damascus. The phrase might indeed refer to the city and district of Damascus. There were certainly Samaritans at Damascus, and here they lived side by side with Jews. The Samaritans in Damascus may have had some important and lasting influence on the current thought systems of the Syrian region. 
It was an influential area in both the Old Testament and New Testament days, and even down to medieval times. MacDonald comments that Damascus, where there was a considerable and active Samaritan community, was the home of Maimonides. Damascus, indeed, seems to have had a long and ancient connection with Samaritan literary activity. It was there that Petro della Valle procured the copy of the Samaritan text of the Pentateuch and the Targum, which he piously deposited in the Vatican Library. Gaster adds that Della Valle found there a very large and beautiful synagogue belonging to them, richly decorated with inscriptions in gold. Here in Damascus, Essenes, Jews, and Samaritans lived together. It may well have been that for some reason they had to flee and come to the desert of Judea, bringing with them the Damascus document. The Damascus Jews probably had little allegiance to Jerusalem. One could see the Damascus document as a Samaritan Jewish polemic against the Judaizers of Jerusalem, the enmity originating from the 6th century, but prolonged with varying intensity to the 2nd and 1st centuries BC. Skipping down a bit, further affinities between Samaritan theology and the Damascus document are found in the fact that only three righteous men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are mentioned in the Exhortation 3, 2-4. These three righteous ones, not counting Moses, who is above all men and angels, are the special saints of the Samaritans. Mamar Makkah, pages 9-11, through speaks of the three perfect ones with whom I made covenants. Further, the glory of the man, or Adam, is mentioned in Damascus Document 3. The Samaritans have much to say about the glory of man. They believed that Adam was created with divine light in him and that this light continued to shine even after the expulsion from Eden. Moses is called the man. This might mean, therefore, that the glory of Moses will be the portion of the elect, but the glory of Adam and Moses would be almost identical. Finally, one should comment that the strict laws about purity and the Sabbath are wholly consonant with the Samaritan ways. Skipping down a bit, another interesting parallel between the Samaritans' practices and the Qumran sectarians occurs in the authority of the sons of Zadok over property. Bowman makes an important observation. He points out that the Samaritans kept Nazarite vows at least until the 11th century A.D., for the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD did not affect the fulfillment of Samaritan Nazarite vows. From a late source, we learn that the Nazir among the Samaritan abstains from the work of the world and its pleasures and is like the high priest in holiness. He dwells with the priests. He lives with other men and women who have taken the vow. If a person had become a perpetual Nazir, he lived under the direction of the high priest, and presumably he would give all his possessions. The Samaritan Nazir was obligated to be a Nazir for a year. Bowman concludes that the Zadokite priests on leaving Jerusalem in the second century may have tried to live in a community as perpetual Nazarites, and that one ventures to wonder whether the Qumran sect's two initiatory years were not based on a Nazarite vow of one year each. 
This is an attractive theory and would certainly explain the difference between the living conditions envisaged in the Damascus document and the rule of the community and also provide a reason for the presence of women's bones in the Qumran cemetery. Skipping down a bit, liturgy, perhaps the most concrete connection between the Qumran community and the Samaritans is their common use of the solar calendar, which apparently was not used by the Sadducees, Pharisees, and we are not certain that it was used by the Essenes. The Samaritans equally, with Qumran, stressed the absolute necessity of keeping the appointed times. The secret of the calendar resided with the high priest and was handed down from high priest to high priest. It was necessary to know the exact conjunction of the sun and the moon if the festivals are to take place at the correct time. Lini has recently pointed out the importance of astronomy for the life of the community. No Hebrew people were more sensitive to the relationship of life and worship to the heavenly bodies and the laws of the universe than the Samaritans. Like most Semitic people, they were interested in the zodiac tables and decorated their synagogues with zodiac frescoes. As for the festivals kept by the Samaritans, we have already discussed the Feast of Weeks, but the most outstanding event in the Samaritan year was the Day of Atonement. The Samaritans were preoccupied with penitence, especially when national crises threatened. We may compare the members of Qumran, who called themselves the penitents of Israel. We may note that neither Purim nor the Feast of Dedication is mentioned either among the Samaritans or at Qumran. Indeed, this might explain why no fragment of the book of Esther has been found. The Samaritans did not keep the Feast of Purim. Skipping down a bit, belief in angels is found among the Samaritans from earliest times. MacDonald comments that, no Near Eastern religion is more abundant than that of the Samaritans in reference to the angels and to their place in the affairs of the world. But the Samaritan beliefs in angels are closer to the Christian beliefs than the Jewish. The names of angels occur here and there in the liturgy, in the liturgy and four names, Phanuel, Anusa, Kabbalah, and Nasi, are especially mentioned. The beliefs are derived from the exegesis of the Pentateuch. There are frequent references to angels, powers, and principalities. Angels are especially concerned with worship and the giving of the law. MacDonald quotes a translation from Cowley, which expresses the general attitude of the Samaritans. Quote, In the evening and the morning the angels of the Lord are present wherever men pray. The angels of the Lord come around about, for it pleases the angels to hear the praises of their Lord at all times. There is no emphasis on evil angels, although names like Belial do occur. The mystic especially may see angels. It seems, therefore, that the angelic liturgy of Qumran would fit admirably into Samaritan theology. The Teacher of Righteousness At this point it would seem convenient to discuss the Samaritan idea of the Tahib and to ask whether to any extent he resembles the Teacher of Righteousness at Qumran. Bowman avers that there was a fairly concrete set of beliefs about the Tahib by the first century AD. The Tahib was to restore and bring victory to the elect, but to have nothing to do with the Day of Vengeance. In more developed thought, he was regarded as a priest who would restore true worship, 
reveal the truth and unite all Israel, Judah, and Ephraim. Under his banner, the Tahib will have power like the prophets of old. He will gather the scattered and bring them from persecution into freedom. He will rebuild the temple on Mount Gerizim, but above all will be instrumental in giving the world the true law. People will accept this law just as the Israelites accepted it in the wilderness. The Tahib, however, is a human figure. He must be from the tribe of Levi and he will pass away. We have very little information about the teacher of righteousness, and therefore we cannot say whether he fulfills the role of the Samaritan Tahib. He does, however, make a better Tahib than a pre-Christian Jesus of Nazareth. The following points are common to the teacher of righteousness and the Samaritan Tahib. They are both lawgivers. Their duty is to reveal the truth and to destroy the lie. The figure of the star is probably connected with both from Numbers 24:17, The teacher of righteousness is called the stave. There may be some link here if, as E. Kothanet suggests, there is a play on the word stave and one who searched the law. There are further resemblances if, as he seems to be, the Tahib is a second Moses. In Samaritan theology, Moses is called the righteous one, the faithful one, the master of knowledge, the son of God's house, the man, the priest over God's house. As Bowman comments, the Tahib appears to be modeled on Ezekiel's Nasi, but referred back to Moses rather than David's stock. If this is so, Ezekiel may have been the inspiration for the Tahib and the teacher of righteousness. Indeed, one might be able to equate the two. Skipping down a bit, the idea of revelation. Whereas the teacher of righteousness was the revealer of the law par excellence, the Qumran sectarians saw the role of the whole community to be seeking after the hidden meanings of the law. This idea of revelation is not foreign to Samaritan theology. Indeed, for the Samaritan, the chief means of revelation were study, scripture, and pursuit of wisdom. Revelation came chiefly through the priests but the very special gift of revelation resided in the high priesthood. The high priest possessed a mystical knowledge transmitted from high priest to high priest and having its original sources in Moses. He is a figure not unlike the teacher of the Qumran community. The Samaritans also experienced revelation through dreams and visions and could certainly have applied Pesher both to dreams and scripture. A prominent feature in Samaritan theology is prophetic inspiration and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is often expressed by light. Like Qumran, the Samaritan literature influenced by philosophical concepts and bears characteristics akin to the wisdom literature. For example, the Samaritan idea of God is not without philosophical concepts, but Samaritan theology is not Gnostic and does not regard matter as evil. Skipping down to the conclusion, Samaritan theological thought and practices, then, are not disconsonant with those which we know to have obtained at Qumran. Although one cannot identify the Qumran sectarians and the Samaritans, yet the present writer would suggest that the Samaritans thought influenced the theology of Qumran and that perhaps people whom later we include among the Samaritans may have been present at Qumran. 
If the Essenes were a branch of the Samaritans, then these Samaritan elements at Qumran are understandable. We have yet to discover the importance of these Samaritan peoples. It is not unreasonable to suppose that they might well have been the authors or compilers of a proportion of the pseudepigraphal literature, especially those works which stress the solar calendar, the patriarchs, the Jewish ancestors, and mysticism. A decision on this matter would not be without tremendous importance for the study of early Christianity. This paper does not pretend to be anything more than a preliminary suggestion on this subject and a plea not to forget the Samaritans at Qumran. It is hoped that when Professor Frank M. Cross's papyri are published, it might be possible to make further venture into this field. This almost two-hour study is only touching on some of the main reasons to be skeptical with regards to the doctrines and calendar found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Considering all of the information available, both scriptural and scholarly, with regard to a very probable connection between the quote-unquote sons of Zadok inhabitants of Qumran and the apostate Zadok priests of the Samaritans, why are some being so quick to advocate switching from the historic lunisolar Hebrew biblical calendar to a solar-only calendar whose 60 fragmented pieces were found in a cave and took over a year to decipher? Please prayerfully study to show yourself approved and avoid a possible great deception that, if it were possible, will deceive even the very elect. Remember, Sanballat encouraged Alexander the Great to support two different temples and to keep the Jewish people divided in order to have more control over them. The enemy is still seeking to divide Yahweh's people today, and actually, probably now more than ever. Blessings and shalom to all of you and everyone in your home.